From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. So, so are you carving your pumpkins yet? <laughs> uh, and not quite yet. Yeah. I'm enjoying all my neighbor's decorations. <laughs> They're all starting to come along, and uh, it's looking really great. So I love being able to look out my window and enjoying other people's decorations. So, uh, In our neighborhood, uh, you know, the, the young families, they've put out, a lot of them put out, you know, their cemeteries and all that out in front. I, uh, I did have... Um, I did get a pumpkin today, so I have that by the front door. I'll get a couple of more, but I haven't really put out decorations and all that yet. I'll give it another few days. I actually listened to Halloween music today <laughs> on the other uh, online, you know, some streaming network. They have a Halloween station, and so so it, it's funny what they choose as Halloween music. But um, oh, I know my dogs are probably gonna attack me one day if they have to hear oh. thriller one more time because when we leave when we leave the house we we do put on music for them to listen to and lately my instinct has just been like play the halloween radio and it's pretty much every single time the first song to come on is thriller like oh these poor dogs if they can pick up on this they they will hate me well, well it won't be too much longer before we're celebrating another holiday and that's mickey mouse's birthday and of course, you and I will be at Destination D in November. And part of that is we are going to be having our Connecting with Walt meetup, um, you know, to sort of kick off um, the Destination D event at the Contemporary Resort at Walt Disney World. So, Craig, did you want to remind our listeners about our get together? Absolutely. So uh, if you don't remember from last week's episode or for some reason you said, I don't care about part one of the Turner Classic Movies lineup, but I really care about part two and you've never heard about it before. We're going to be doing our unofficial official meetup at the Outer Rim Lounge at the Contemporary. So that if you don't know what that is, that is the lounge on the fourth floor. So once you go in the building, if you're entering from like the ground floor for some reason, driving over there, walking over from the Magic Kingdom, uh, you just you go up the escalators and you get into the the main the main area of the hotel on the fourth floor. And it's just right off to the left of Chef Mickey's and Contempo Cafe. If you're coming from the monorail, then you just once you you'll see it from the monorail most likely but uh you just you get off the monorail go down the escalator and you're right on the fourth floor for that so nice and easy and we're doing this on friday 
So the day before the event actually begins, kicks off on Saturday morning. So, but check-in is on Friday. So we're doing that. It's November 16th, just as a reminder to everyone. And we're going to get together at two o'clock. So uh, it's a good time. So a little bit after lunch. So we shouldn't interfere with too many people's lunch plans and give you still plenty of time to check in and walk around the area and still have uh you know lots of park time at night time for dinner all that good stuff so uh we don't really have a time set for when it's gonna end but uh you know we just we'll, we'll be there talking and as it naturally feels like it's time to come to a close we will all just slowly get up and walk away yeah, yeah. And, and you have plenty of time to order your Connecting with Walt shirts, mm-hmm. you know. And Otherwise, we won't know who you are yeah, and if you're there right. for us. We'll just assume that you're regular guests at the Contemporary. That's right. Just hanging out at the lounge, at, you know, mm-hmm. getting a drink at two in the afternoon. It's, it's allowed. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, just a reminder, if, if you were around uh, listening to when I unboxed the uh, D23 Mickey birthday box um i have my promotional code where if you're going to become a gold member this year so that you can attend like the d23 expo i have a promotional code where you get like a five dollar discount but then i can get a prize and i only i need one more person one more listener to to ask for my promotional code and then i'll get a pin and a a d23 mickey mouse print I don't think I'm going to get up to five people because then I would get the pin, the print, and the one-year D23 gold membership extension, which would be incredible. But I, it, it would be cool to get the at least the pin and the print. So you have until October 6th, which, you know, by the time this show airs, you know, don't have much time. But, you know, send me an email or even a, you know, message on Twitter or Facebook, and I will send you that promotional code and all that. I just didn't realize the D23 became a pyramid scheme. Yeah, really, really. Well, you know, they're smart because they know that, uh, unfortunately, there are people that only join in expo years. So they're they're probably trying to get them in now. And you get a cool prize when you um, sign up. So I'm going to pretend that it's not a pyramid scheme. They're just, it, they recently watched the, uh, the, the 90s classic Tom and Huck and brought back that inspiration of getting kids to whitewash the fence and convince everyone how fun it is. And so they should sign up to do it. But, you know, I did get a, I think I got a survey from D23. I think it was from them a couple of weeks ago. And the interesting thing was, of course, it was all about, you know, what do I like about D23 and the events? And what are some things that, you know, could be improved, you know, like registration and maybe having more events with more people but then they asked a ton of questions about streaming services cable services what i watch and subscribe to and how many hours per week and all that so that you know they're gathering data for their new streaming service well that kind of ties in i don't know if you saw just earlier today uh on Twitter, the day that we're recording this, behind the curtain, it's Tuesday, mm-hmm. and this release is on Friday, but I, I don't remember the name of the handle that uh, posted about it, but apparently they're working on a documentary series for the streaming service about uh, the the women of ink and paint. Oh, so, excellent. Yeah, so... I'm wondering if that's part of it too. They're if they're getting the information from 
D23 members, arguably the biggest Disney fans, to try to find out if how much history content they should actually put on. There, there were a lot of questions about do we about the content that we like in D23 and why did we join? And they listed everything. Of course, for me, it was all the history content was at the top. I think that's what most people are most interested in, for sure. So that's and that's all getting me more excited for the streaming service. Maybe it won't be a bust in terms of uh, in terms of history content as well as good classic Disney content. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. You know, speaking of streaming services, you know, we did talk about the streaming service last week. Uh, you know what little we knew about it. But uh, and last week, as you mentioned, Craig, we started talking about the Turner Classic Movies uh Treasures from the Disney Vault, the October fifteenth, uh, um, you know, lineup. And last week we talked about, oh, we talked about M- Magician Mickey and Bedknobs and Broomsticks and the Little Whirlwind and Flight of the Navigator, and and now this week we are we're going all in with big guns here. <laughs> so so let, let's let's get underway and take flight at connecting walk <laughs> um so anyway so well we have our next uh sci-fi film coming up here and that is the uh black hole so craig are you still munching on popcorn um, this time of i'm night? probably taking a break at this point so just just <laughs> relaxing having a nice Nice big cup of coffee to get me going at midnight. Well, I think you'll need it for this one. Um, so anyway, so we continue our exploration of the unknown at 12.15 in the morning with 1979's melodramatic science fiction film The Black Hole, which was to be the launch of Walt Disney Productions' own sci-fi franchise rivaling Star Wars. Directed by Gary Nelson and produced by Ron Miller, it was the first film from Walt Disney Productions to receive a PG rating because of the frequent use of Hell and Damn and the violent death of a significant character. The film also features some subtext and metaphysical and religious themes that reflected the company's interest in developing more adult-oriented and mainstream films. This is apparent more towards the end of the film. Um, this would eventually lead the studio to create the distribution company Touchstone Pictures. So films considered too mature for the Buena Vista distribution label could be released under the Touchstone label. The version of the film later broadcast on the Disney Channel was edited for language with all uses of the word damn and hell removed. Now, science fiction author and scriptwriter Harlan Ellison, he wrote one of the most classic science fiction, uh, Star Wars, or I'm sorry, Star Trek um, of the original series episode, City on the Edge of Forever. He was briefly brought on as a scientific consultant on the film. He was fired on his first day, before lunch was over, because he pitched an animated, let's just say adult movie, starring Disney characters. Roy Edward Disney was sitting at the next table, heard everything, and had Ellison fired on the spot. 
Ellison insists he was simply joking, but others who were there say he was seriously talking about it. You, you can read between the lines uh, as to what he was pitching here. So, um, Alan Dean Foster, who, had, who went on to write the novelization of the film, was so appalled by the bad science in the script that he provided a list of changes to the producers which he felt would improve the story. Upset by this, the Disney executives held a meeting to decide what to do. Maximilian Schell as Hans Reinhardt is, is the star of this show um, film. Considered for the role of Reinhardt, though, were Harry Andrews, Peter Cushing, Herbert Lohm, um, Kurt Jurgens, um, Patrick Trofton, Christopher Lee, Donald Pleasance, Anton Diffring, Hardy Kruger, Max von Sydow, and Jeremy Kemp. Uh, so there are some big names in this film, um, besides Maximilian Schell. Um, Anthony Perkins is Dr. Alex Durant. Robert Forster is Captain Dan Holland. Joseph Bottoms is Lieutenant Charlie Pizer. Yvette Mimeau, Mimeau, however you say her name, Mimeau, as Dr. Kate McRae. Ernest Borgnine is Harry Booth. Tom McLaughlin is Captain... Um, Star, S-T-A-R, which is Special Troops Arms Regiment. Roddy McDowell is the voice of Vincent, and that's an acronym, V-I-N-C-E-N-T. Um, Slim Pickens was the voice of Old Bob. Again, Bob is an acronym, B-O-B. And these, Roddy McDowell and Slim Pickens were not credited for these roles. But, I mean, this was supposed to be a very big deal. Uh, oh, yeah. So, even though a lot of people... You know, younger than my age might not know a lot of this cast. I mean, I would hope you would at least know Anthony Perkins and Ernest Borgnine, but um, or Slim Pickens if you're really, uh, really into a lot of film. But um, it's this was this was a big deal. It just this is epic. This is supposed to be an epic not film come together. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I'm I'm going to rewatch I'm going to watch this just to see if my memory of this film holds. The music <laughs> so, is great. Cuz I went to see this. I I found the music ponderous. Oh really? Oh my gosh. There's there's a one theme cuz I listened to the soundtrack. It's on YouTube as I wrote, you know, as I researched the background of this. And I remember it. I remember thinking at the time this came out, because I went opening night with friends, because this that's how huge a deal this film was supposed to be. Um, I there, There's one theme, musical theme, that is repeated over and over and over. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And so when I listened to the soundtrack, I thought this is exactly as ponderous as I remember it. That's funny because so. I, I enjoy the score, but they, different strokes. I, I I know. Well, I enjoyed all of it except I, when when folks when you when you watch this film and you you have to watch it, mm-hmm. um, y- you'll know what musical sequence musical number that repeats itself. I'm talking about. <laughs> so um, so anyway, it's the year twenty one thirty and an exploratory spaceship. So, so we're going to journey to the event horizon for the storyline of this. Um, so we're in the year twenty one thirty, an exploratory spaceship, the USS Palomino, 
is returning from a deep space exploration mission. The crew includes Captain Dan Holland, First Officer Lieutenant Charlie Pizer, journalist Harry Booth, ESP-sensitive scientist Dr. Kate McRae, the expedition's civilian leader Dr. Dr. Alex Durant, and the robot Vincent. And Vincent stands for Vital Information Necessary Centralized. They had to work to get that acronym. During its journey, the Palomino's crew is alerted to the existence of a nearby black hole, and when they go to investigate, they find a derelict ship somehow defying the hole's gravitational pull. The ship is identified as the long-lost USS Cygnus, a ship McRae's father, Ensign Frank McRae, served aboard when it was reported missing. Deciding to investigate, the Palomino encounters a mysterious null gravity field surrounding the Cygnus. The ship is then damaged when it drifts away from the Cygnus and into the black hole's intense gravity field. The Palomino manages to move back to the Cygnus and finds itself able to dock with it. The Palomino crew encounters an android crew in Dr. Hans Reinhardt, a prominent scientist and the Cygnus's commander. They also meet Reinhardt's second-in-command, uh, this huge like linebacker of a robot, Maximilian. And Reinhardt explains that after his ship encountered a meteoroid field and was disabled, he ordered the crew to return to Earth. But Kate's father, Ensign McRae, chose to remain aboard and has since died. The Palomino's crew is stunned when Reinhardt reveals he intends to fly the Cygnus through the black hole. Only Durant believes it is possible and asks to accompany Reinhardt on the trip. So much more takes place. <clears throat> and what are the faceless androids aboard the Cygnus? Does the Cygnus journey through the black hole? What is on the other side? You'll have to outlast the crew to find out. So, um... So, so Craig, <laughs> what what are your thoughts on this one? I it, it's not a good movie. Um, no. It's just plain and simple. It, it's not a good movie. <laughs> I discovered it during college. Um, it's I got in this phase with my roommate where we were picking up uh, bargain DVDs, like they were growing on trees and. Uh, and, and this was like buy four get one free and this is the free one it's a, I'm sure <laughs> at that point in time I, I probably got it for at least under five dollars if not four dollars or, or three um, like that's that's the mode I was in I was a poor college student that I wanted bulk but I didn't really uh, I didn't really pay attention to the quality on a lot of the things I was buying and I didn't know what the black hole was at that time it's one of those movies that just completely was off my radar uh, as I was growing up and I, I won't forget watching it for the first time it it was bad I I probably fell asleep four times before I made it all the way through um, with in one entire uh, viewing of the film and so I I, I there are things I like about it. I, I do like some mm -hmm. of the cinematography in it. Like I already said, I do enjoy the score to it. But uh, it is just it is a chore of a movie. It's it's exactly oh what movies shouldn't be. Like you shouldn't have to struggle to get through them. 
No, you just slog through this. And I remember when it was done, I just sat there thinking, what have I seen? And um, what happened? I, I genuinely can't imagine seeing this in theaters. So this, I, I don't know if I'd say it, but I, because I've watched a lot of crap without walking out, but um, it's, this is on that borderline of, I could, I could almost see myself, if I didn't fall asleep, I'd maybe walk out. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, well, the initial idea for the film was conceived by veteran Disney writer and producer Winston Hibbler in 1974 and is originally titled Space Station One. You Probably most of us know Winston Hibbler because he narrated all of the um, True Life Adventure series, but he also was a producer and director for Disney. Uh, the film was conceived as a disaster film in which the black hole was used as a minor background feature. And this was so important that Hibbler brought Matt designer Peter Ellenshaw out of retirement to create conceptual designs on the proposed film. The Matt work in this film is gorgeous. Some There are some breathtaking scenes, like uh, the way... Uh, the way the way they illuminated space with the Cygnus glowing, you know, against the black hole, it, it is breathtaking. Some of that work and what they went through to to create that scene, it was all manually done, poking little holes and black background and all that. But um, so some of it is stunning visually. Um, however, Hibbler died in 1976. So four months later, British director John Hugh was, was um, approached to direct the film, but he turned down the offer. Encouraged by the success of Star Wars, Walt Disney's son-in-law and then executive vice president of production and creative affairs, Ron Miller, took over the project that had was now retitled Space Probe One. The script is rewritten to focus on the encounter of a black hole, a phenomenon that had been a growing discussion within the scientific community and with the public at the time. In December 1977, Miller approached Gary Nelson to direct the project. After reading a draft of the script, Nelson turned down the offer. However, he was called back to the studio, and after observing the miniatures and matte paintings created by Ellen Shaw, he agreed to direct. After scientific research headed by marketing director Martin Rabinovich, the title Black Hole was selected to convey the power and mystique of the film. The ethereal struggle of good and evil ending of the film had not been written when the film went into production and was conceived when the film was late into production. I, I always think that's just a dreadful sign when um, the, you don't have the ending when you, when you start. Oh, it's, <laughs> you never really hear about, oh, it just really came together as it went along. That's, that might exist every once in a blue moon but uh for this it was never gonna work yeah yeah um the black hole opened during the holiday season on december 18th 1979 alongside star trek the motion picture which was also inspired by the success of star wars i went to opening night of that one too and i'm a as you know i'm a big star trek fan um I, I, I went out of that thinking, what did I just see as well? Um, and, and this followed the summer blockbusters of Alien and James Bond's Moonraker. So 
It was seen by some, the black hole was seen by some as a scientific version of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, with Maximilian Schell playing a Captain Nemo-like character. And the influence of Star Wars is unmistakable, with its helper droids who could be distant relatives of R2-D2, and, and Maximilian is sort of the Darth Vader-like villain. Although, if you bring this up with the creators of this film, they are very offended. <laughs> that you would you would state that they were at all influenced by Star yeah. Wars. It, it was one of the last major Hollywood films to have an overture, which was later cut for television screenings but restored for home media release. And the score was by John Barry. Um, the 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 other last film to have an overture was was Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Huh. Now, okay, you're gonna you're gonna like you're gonna like this this little mix gem I picked up here, um, Craig. Reinhardt's robot was already called Maximilian before Maximilian Schell was chosen for the role of Reinhardt. So, okay, here's a spoiler alert. So fast forward about 15 or 20 seconds if you don't want to hear the ending. Reinhardt would end the film merged with the robot, thus being ironically trapped in Maximilian's shell. Uh, well, I do enjoy Boom, a good one. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, I did not make that one up. I, I came across that in, in my research. That is it's uh, clever. The, that is clever. Um, the, the Black Hole was one of the first Disney films to use computerized motion control miniature effects, but it was done the old-fashioned way, such as filming characters in zero gravity using wires. And, and so you can see the wires sometimes in, in the film. Um, the Black Hole was shot using a blend of traditional camera techniques and newly developed computer-controlled camera technology. Now, the Disney studio wanted to rent equipment from Industrial Lights and Magic, but it was unavailable during the film's production period, and it was prohibitively expensive. So Disney turned to its own engineering department, which created the ASUS Automated Camera Effects System. And this computerized system allowed for the camera to take double exposure photographs of the miniature models as it moves convincingly across the map painting. It also permitted the actors to move unrestrictedly within a matte painting, and the camera tracks them with a non-existent set that would be painted in later. So this matte scan system was then used to composite live action shots into a single matte painting while the camera is in motion on several axes. So 150 max matte paintings were created for the film under the supervision of Harrison Ellen Shaw, but only 13 were used in the film. So, so I do have great respect for the technology that went into this. Yeah, film. absolutely. It's I, I don't think anyone could argue against that. It's just how yeah. the technology was used wasn't yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the spaceship Cygnus was a 12-foot-long model weighing 175 pounds. It was originally named Centaurus, but it was renamed Cygnus after the constellation where the first black hole was discovered. Vincent was to have more elaborate electronic eyes based on stock ticker-type billboards to give him a greater range of facial expression, but it didn't work and was abandoned. 
the laser gun points of the weapons were designed to light up when the actors pulled the triggers to help animators. Uh, you know, it gave animators a reference so they'd know where to add the laser effects. Um, this proved to be a problem because the actors would accidentally pull the triggers without realizing it. So, so they were shooting each other uh, unintentionally. Gosh. Um, <laughs> um, director Gary Nelson was not happy with the way the model shop created Bob, um, believing he did not look battered enough. So he went to the clay model they were using as a reference and hit it with a baseball bat several times. And then a new Bob was created based on the battered clay model. Poor Bob. <laughs> um, the green grid sequence that appears during the opening titles, they were the longest computer graphic sequence ever produced for a film at that time. And the visual effect of the black hole itself was created by forming a whirlpool in a round plexiglass water tank and adding different colors of paint. So now, the film was originally supposed to take place in a completely weightless environment. So that the technical difficulties prompted a rewrite of the script so that when the Palomino ties up with the Cygnus um, gravity return, and that's all explained in one sentence. One of the characters just states, oh, we have gravity. So, so problem solved. Great, great writing. Um, yeah, Yvette Mimiot was given a short and curly hairstyle to make the scenes where she appeared weightless seem more convincing, since longer hair would have flowed about in zero gravity. Now, the helmets of the robot sentinels had very limited vision, uh, making it difficult to direct and coordinate the actors, especially when they were firing the lasers. Now, some leftover Sentry robot costumes were later used in Steven um, Leisberger's test reel for 1982's Tron. And the poster of the movie can be seen in Sam Flynn's bedroom in the opening scene of Tron Legacy 2010. So there's a connection there. Um, Walt Disney Productions arranged for quite a bit of promotion and merchandising with the release of the film. Now, science fiction author Alan Dean Foster wrote a novelization based on the film, which was published at the same time as the film's release. Uh, Star Trek fans know him for writing um, early novelizations of the original series of Star Trek. Um, Foster once stated that a challenge he faced was his novelization had to rationalize the scientific inaccuracies depicted in the film. For decades, I I've talked about this comic strip that Disney had, Walt Disney's Treasure of Classic Tales, that they would use to promote their latest film releases. It was always in the Sunday edition of newspapers. Um, well, comic book artist Mike Royer suggested fellow artist Jack Kirby to draw a comic strip adaptation of the film, in, and Kirby accepted the challenge. The comic strip adaptation, which ran for 26 weeks, was scripted by Carl Falberg, and the inking was done by um, Royer. So separate comic book adaptations were published in the United States, Mexico, and Europe. There were also Disney read-along recording and illustrated storybooks and little golden books telling the stories of the Cygnus and her droids. 
Now, the Mago Corporation produced 6 million action figures and models of the USS Palomino from the film, and they released these in the fall of 1974, just in time for the Christmas season. Nabisco issued a series of plastic pencil holders in the shape of the film's robot characters via specially marked boxes of breakfast cereal. The action figures did not sell well at the time, but are now highly sought after by collectors. Do you have any of these in your collection, I Craig? I do not, but uh, probably never will. Leave it to the nerds <laughs> to drive up the value of everything. <laughs> so, says the guy who is collecting Funko. Okay, let's forget <laughs> about that. Oh. <laughs> uh, now, Disney promoted this movie on its Sunday evening television show, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, Major Effects, in 1979, in an episode titled Major Effects. And this aired on December 16, 1979. And this is a lighthearted semi-documentary, and it featured Jody, or Joseph Bottoms as the title character, Major Effects. Uh, I guess the folks who wrote the script for the film wrote the script for this episode. Of course. Of course they did. Um, In 1983, Disney put out a computer learning game spinoff, Space Probe Math. And this was a cassette containing two educational games designed for use with the Radio Shack TRS-80 color computer. I had these computers in my classroom when I was a teacher at this time. The concept of the first game was that the Palomino had landed on an infected planet, Delta Five Omega. All the crew were falling under mind diffusion and basically a, a viral form of fatigue. And the play this was for um, players aged seven to fourteen. They had to solve multiplication or division problems to save the crew. And in the second game, the player had to save a primitive world's crops using um, rectangular and perimeter um, math problems. It's just ironic, considering you get mind diffusion from watching the black hole. <laughs> so, works out perfectly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the film opened to mixed reviews, <laughs> as you can imagine, um, with a production budget of $20 million plus another $6 million for advertising. It was, at the time, the most expensive picture ever produced by Walt Disney Productions. During its theatrical release, the movie grossed $35.8 million, and it was the 21st highest grossing film of the year. So, you know, not bad. Um, but not what Disney had hoped. Um, it earned two Academy Award nominations for Best Visual Effects and Best Cinematography. And The Black Hole represents the last film created under the old studio system where everything was created in-house by studio departments. Um, in November 2009, it, something there's something about 2009 where a lot of reboots were announced. Uh, it was reported that Disney had planned to remake The Black Hole. Director Joseph Kaczynski, who also directed Disney's Tron Legacy, and producer Sean Bailey were attached to the production. Uh, by April 2013, John Spates, who wrote the script for the Alien prequel Pr- Prometheus, signed on as a screenwriter. In 2016, it was announced that the movie's development was put on hold because Spate's script was considered too dark for a Disney movie. 
In March 2018, it was reported that Emily Carmichael, who is responsible for Pacific Rim Uprising, um, would be writing the film. So, Craig, what's your prediction for the remake of The Black Hole? I predict that the uh, the latest script, the 2016 one, probably uh, had like the title card come up, The Black Hole, and then after that... It faded to black and then just spent the next two <laughs> hours on a completely black screen. And that's what they mean by too dark for a Disney movie. Uh, I could be wrong, but that seems pretty likely. Um, it's, I, you know what? Maybe. It, it worked for Tron going and doing Tron Legacy, but even then, Tron Legacy was a good movie that wasn't truly appreciated uh Mm -hmm. so i I can't even say it necessarily worked they they can go ahead and redo the black hole and and start it back up again but it's just going to flop and i i don't know what they would do with it it's it's not (laughs) worth it you know what if you want to go back and fix something that didn't work the first time uh for the majority of the audience not everyone maybe take another stab and you know the 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 take Tomorrowland and do it over again. So I still well, enjoy put in that some movie, of the, and I like I the, love that film. I like the the special cut that some of the fans put together with it, the the Dreamers cut. Um, but you know, if we're gonna take movies that just weren't quite there and needed some tweaks, go with that one, not not the black mm-hmm. hole. At least put in the deleted scenes so that it gives some explanation yeah. of what was going on and the connection to Disney. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't even know what to say. Now, but now the ironic thing is, you know, this was made to to challenge the Star Wars franchise. And then Disney bought Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't need the black hole no, they, anymore. They don't. And I, I just want to stress this i i made the joke about coffee going into this one uh don't be surprised if you haven't seen this before if you don't if you feel like you can't make it through just set your alarm uh if you plan on staying up on it and watching it yeah it's but you've got you've got to see this yeah, <laughs> you really do <laughs> just do do what you, if you can't stay awake for it definitely this is one to dvr it, it, you need multiple sittings. If not, I'll, I'll let you borrow my DVD copy the next time you come in town. Yeah, but no, I am going to rewatch this because I, I just have to see if my memory is accurate. You have fun. On this one. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, so, after the drama of the Black Hole, we get a much-needed comedy break with the 1949 Pluto cartoon, Pluto Sweater, uh, starring Minnie Mouse and Figaro the Kitten as well. Uh, dozens of Pluto cartoon shorts were released in the 1940s, and the story of Pluto Sweater was the work of Disney story artists Eric Gurney and Milt Schaefer. And during the spring of 1947, they developed their outline, a Mickey Mouse knits, Minnie Mouse knits a sweater for Pluto to keep him warm outside in cold weather. Pluto is mortified at the sight of this this pink sweater, and he frantically tries to avoid wearing it, whilst Figaro enjoys his discomfiture. Um, Forced to go outside in the new garment, Pluto tries to extricate himself from it, and in the process falls in water. 
The sweater, now soaking wet, begins to shrink and becomes much too small for Pluto, but is now perfectly suited for Figaro. So, uh, this is directed by Charles Nichols. The voice actors include um, Ruth Clifford, uh, Pinto Kolvig, and Clarence Nash. This is one of my favorite Pluto um, cartoon shorts. I I really like yeah, this one. It's, I, I will just say, I don't care for a lot of the Pluto shorts. Um, mm-hmm. It's He's... I, I enjoy him as a side character, but not in a lot of his, his starring roles. Um, it's, I I don't think he's likable in a lot of them and not in that. That's just my opinion on it. So I, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say I hate it. I, there are some that I really get a kick out of and, and this is one that I, I do like, but there's, there's no Pluto shorts that I would say are in like my favorites of all time. Yeah, I, I think I like this one too, just because of the 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 interplay between him and Figaro, yeah, and that, that's definitely and, and the I, highlights. Yeah, yeah. And I always like Figaro. I don't, I don't quite understand how he um, left Geppetto and became in the possession of Minnie, but you'll notice there are many many cartoon shorts where uh, Figaro is Minnie's kitten. Well, it's clearly Disney magic. <laughs> so yeah, really. So. Now, during the post-war years, the studio's cartoon shorts division was releasing one-reel cartoons featuring the most well-known Disney characters. And these were the studio's bread and butter as Walt ventured into live-action films and other areas of interest like theme parks. So um, now, again, got to let you know, if you watch the Have a Laugh version, these are the scenes that are deleted from that version of the cartoon. Pluto imagining Minnie in a sweater only to realize it's for him, after which he envisions himself in it. Pluto kicking out Figaro from his hiding place under the couch. Figaro finishing the process of the sweater being put on Pluto by pulling out his tail through it. Minnie telling Pluto that his sweater will keep him warm whilst outside. A shocked Pluto seeing the sweater on him as he looks in the mirror. I would think that would be a crucial scene. After getting thrown out of the house once, Pluto trying to get to go back in twice, only to get thrown out again a third time. Pluto, in in trying to extract himself from his sweater, hears footsteps, which turn out to come from uh, sweaters around the sweater around his middle. Um, Pluto struggling on the ground with his temporary inflated sweater. Pluto walking off with the now shrunk um, sweater over his head. Minnie reading the hooded monster when she hears someone who's Pluto with the shrunk sweater over his head. Now, in the scene where Pluto is attempting to pull the sweater loose with his teeth, Pluto fans may note that the action looks familiar. In the midst of this scene, animator Hugh Frazier borrowed a short passage from the flypaper sequence animated by Norm Ferguson nearly 15 years er- earlier for the short Playful Pluto. Mm, that's clever. Which is probably the most classic yeah. of the Pluto shorts. Mm-hmm. Well, the themes of space fantasy from The Black Hole and a cute kitten from Pluto's sweater come together in our next feature, The Cat from Outer Space. And this 1978 
feline sci-fi fantasy features a who's who of 1970s television and film character actors, some of whom went on to be game show regulars in the 80s. So this features um, Ken Berry as Frank. A lot of people will remember Ken Berry from, you know, Mayberry RFD, and then later on in the syndicated Mama's Family, the... uh, Yes, so, so and um, which is a spinoff of the Carol Burnett show. Sandy Duncan as Liz, uh, Roddy McDowell as Mr. Stallwood. He was in a lot of Disney films during this time. Harry Morgan as General Stilton, and McLean Stevenson as Link. The interesting thing is Harry Morgan. You know, he plays an eccentric general, and McLean Stevenson plays a Harry Doctor in this film. But in Harry Morgan's first appearance on the television series Mash. He played an eccentric general, which a lot of people might not recall. And then McLean Stevenson was a regular on that series in the role of the Harry Doctor in command of the 4077th. Now, Jesse White, a very well-known character actor at the time, is Ernest Ernie. Alan Young is Dr. Wenger. Hans Conried is Dr. Heffel. And Hans Conried, very often on The Wonderful World of Color, whenever they featured the magic mirror, he did the voice for the magic mirror. And um, Ronnie Schell played Jake, and he was also the um, voice of Sergeant... um, He was the voice of Jake, and he also played um, Sergeant Duffy. So... Now, the film was directed by Norman Toker and was produced by Ron Miller. And similar to Flight of the Navigator, an unidentified flying object makes an emergency landing on Earth and is taken into custody by the United States government. The occupant of the flying saucer turns out to be a cat-like alien named Zunar J. 59 Doric 47. And his human friends nickname him Jake. Uh, Using a special collar, he is able to communicate with humans, levitate objects, open and close doors and windows, and even take a wrecked plane into the air. So the cat wants American scientists to help him find some Org-12 so his craft may rendezvous with his mothership and eventually settles on Dr. Frank Wilson to assist him. Now, after Frank determines that Org-12 is gold, when Jake tells him it's atomic weight, 196.967, Jake uses his caller's powers to affect the outcome of various sporting events, including horse races and pool games, to win money to buy the needed gold and repair his saucer. So does Jake win enough money to, uh, to purchase enough gold to repair his saucer and return to the mother's ship? Or is Jake arrested by the federal government and the SPCA for illegal gambling practices? Or does Jake fall in love with Liz's cat, Lucy Bell, and decide to remain on Earth? Well, you'll just have to sort of rattle around and <laughs> wait for the end to find out. I'm so excited for this. Have you seen this? No. Oh, this is just a delightful Delightful little film. This is just typical of all of the film Disney films of this era where they were just enjoyable family films. They were not heavy hitters. They were not great dramas. They were not uh, there to to make a great impact in the filmology of, of, of movie history. They were just 
there so parents and grandparents and children could spend an enjoyable couple of hours at the movies. Uh, all I know is I've looked at images of it, and it looks absolutely ridiculous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the poster, assuming this is a real poster, which I, I believe it is, the tagline on it was mysterious visitor with unknown powers on our planet for supplies, dot, 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 a six pack of tuna. Like, <laughs> that's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's also yeah. comical, but, and, and it's actually kind of funny after, um, after I looked at the lineup and, and saw everything that was on there and like oh a cat from outer space that's that's cool i've never seen that one before then i was i just had family guy on in the background and they even made a joke about cat from outer space in it and i was like that is that's just really ironic that i just heard this is going to be on treasures from the disney vault and now i'm i'm listening to this in the background and they're making a joke about it so oh that's uh, funny what was the joke uh i don't even remember it now <laughs> he was like drunk in a movie theater and just asked the question like oh is this cat from outer space and it's like that's <laughs> such a i mean i know that it's all based on random jokes in that show but i'm like mm -hmm. this just where did they pull that one from but uh it's i i'm very very excited i think I think this could be the highlight of the night, for me at least. Oh, in terms of campiness, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the Cat from Outer Space was the first project for Norman Tokar, or Toker, however you say his name, under his exclusive producer-director contract with the Walt Disney Studios. And it was his last film before his passing in 1979. Now, Ron Miller, the film's producer, signed Tokar. He previously, Tokar had directed several Disney films, including Savage Sam, which was the sequel to Old Yeller, um, Those Callaways, Follow Me Boys, The Ugly Dash Hund, uh, The Happiest Millionaire, and The Apple Dumpling Gang, uh, to name just a few. But fans of classic television will know him as the director of the early seasons of Leave it to Beaver. So. Now, Miller purchased the screenplay from cartoonist Ted Key, and he was best known for his daily newspaper cartoon, Hazel. And there was a television series based on that starring um, Shirley Booth. Now, The Cat from Outer Space was the third story Disney purchased from Key. The others were the 1971 film The Million Dollar Duck and the 1976 film Gus. Now, principal photography began on May 16, 1977 at the Walt Disney Studios, and Disney's Golden Oak Ranch was also used for several scenes. And the budget was estimated to be around three and a half to four million dollars. And the publisher Pocketbooks negotiated a deal to distribute a paperback novelization to coincide with the film's release. Uh, Craig, you have to see, you know, if the book is out there. So you can you know read about it. Oh no, I I absolutely plan on it. So I <laughs> I've been on a very big reading kick lately. So this is uh, if it's there, I'm gonna find it. <laughs> now the opening scenes of the film are a parody of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, with deep focus photography of flashes of light in the night, loud roaring, a chicken squawking, a confused farmer with a shotgun, and a curious Labrador retriever. 
Unlike Close Encounters, we see the occupant of the mysterious craft right away, a male cat wearing a crystal-looking collar. Now, the producers screen-tested multiple breeds of cats for the title role and settled upon the Abyssinian due to the breed's ease of training and for its appealing appearance. For the role, several look-alike cats, including two cats named Rumpler and his sister Amber, in the starring role were trained. I think they're about 15 months old. Ronnie Shell, and he probably best known for his supporting role on Gomer Pyle, um, who pro- he provided the voice of Jake, but he was also given the small part of an army sergeant. And in post-production, it was decided that his voice was too easily recognizable, so the on-screen role was redubbed by another unidentified actor. So, so uh, look for NBA Hall of Famer Pistol Pete Maravich and Pat Riley on a clip of a 1971 NBA Hawks-Lakers basketball game. And at a crucial scene towards the middle of the film, Jake levitates Frank and a motorcycle across an army barricade to escape pursuit. And this type of visual gag had been used before in both Disney's Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain. And the sequence resembles a similar one later seen in Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Yeah, so so see a lot of connections to other you know uh, science fiction films. Yeah, I, Steven Spielberg must be just super proud. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you might have been a fan of this film. I, I will do the research yeah. to find out if that's true. <laughs> let us let us know next week. In 1971, a copyright infringement suit was filed in federal court against Walt Disney Productions by Frank G. Nordstrom in Denver, Colorado. And Nordstrom claimed the cat from outer space had infringed upon his own works. But on August 4, 1980, Judge Richard P. Match um, ruled in favor of Disney, concluding Nordstrom's allegations were unfounded. So, so Craig, since this is the film you are most excited about, you have to let us know next week if this lived up to your expectations. I have no doubt that it's going to. So it's, I, I'm hoping for something that is just kind of cheesy along the lines of like Treasure uh, from the Matacumbe was and other other movies from the late seventies, early eighties time periods that. Uh, just would not have a home today. Well, I guess it'd be about as close as calling like a Disney Channel original movie. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to insult it like that much either. But it's uh, it'll it'll be interesting. I'm I'm very very excited. Yes, yes. I think you'll enjoy it. So so Craig, here we are. The the dawn rises. So what will be your morning snack for the very last film? Of of our of this marathon, considering it's breakfast time, basically at four o'clock, um, I I have to have breakfast, and since it's October, well, I'm going to be eating a big bowl of Count Chocula because that's that <laughs> is the cereal meant for the Halloween season. So that's what I gotta be I gotta be enjoying right now. 
And, and you need the sugar rush, I think, yeah. to, to get to get through one last film here. So it's 4 a.m. and it's time for the last film, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, released on June 25th, 1980, starring Elliot Gould, Genevieve Bujol, Ricky Schroeder. He was Ricky at the time. A full-scale B-29 Super Fortress bomber, 20 chickens, 6 pigs, 5 sheep, 4 rabbits, 2 gray geese, 4 white ducks, 2 goats, 2 bulls, and a mallard duck. It was directed by Char- Charles Giraud and produced by Ron Miller and Jan Williams. So in this story, a jaded pilot named Noah Dugan, who's portrayed by Gould, is unemployed and owes a large amount of money due to his gambling. He goes to an old friend named Astoni, who's portrayed by Vincent Gardinia, who owns an airfield, and he is offered a job flying a cargo of animals to a remote South Pacific island aboard a B-29 bomber. Bernadette Laf- Lafleur, oh, who knows, that's Bujold, is the prim missionary who accompanies him. Bernadette has raised the animals at an orphanage and is close to two of the orphans, Bobby and Julie, who Schroeder and Tammy Lauren, who I believe is the stepdaughter of the director, if memory serves. Um, The two children cannot bear to part with their beloved animals and stow away aboard the bomber as it takes off. During the flight, the plane goes off course and Dugan is forced to crash land on an uncharted island. Whilst on the island, the group meets two elderly Japanese holdout soldiers who have lived there alone for 35 years. At first, the soldiers treat them as enemies as they are unaware that World War II is over. And if that sounds outlandish, that actually happened in real life. Um, Soldiers were discovered on an island years and years and years after the war and they had no idea it was over. Um, However, Bernadette wins their friendship and trust as they propose to turn the plane into a boat to sail back to civilization. In the meantime, Noah and Bernadette, or Bernie as he calls her, overcome their resentment for each other and fall in love. I'm sure no one saw it coming. Bernie even paints the logo Noah's Ark on the converted boat plane. The animals are also brought on board at Bobby's urging. Bobby also resents Dugan at first, but the two eventually develop a close bond, especially after Dugan saves Bobby's life when the boy falls overboard whilst fishing for sharks. Yeah, that would do it. Are they rescued? Do they all live happily ever after? Do the animals find new homes? Do they open a zoo together? You'll have to sail along to the end of the film to find out. So, Craig, uh, I'm sure you have very strong memories of this film. I actually have never watched this one. Um, really? Yeah, no, I, I've never watched it. Uh, it's <laughs> it the first time I really actually even I don't want to say heard about it. I, I did hear about it before, but the first time that it really came on my radar to try to watch it is um, back last year. It was finally released on Blu-ray through the Disney Movie Club as an exclusive mm-hmm. title there. And when when that happened, I considered... That was one of the first times I considered joining the movie club. And, uh, and that was one of the things that was going to push me over the edge. I love Elliot Gold. Uh, I, think, mm-hmm. I think he's a great actor and very funny. And uh, of 
I I don't have that fondness with uh, Ricky Schroeder. He was just before my time, so I'm I'm not I'm not into Ricky, but. Um, I, but because it was released on Blu-ray, I knew that they had a, a newly, not remastered, but definitely upgraded for HD version of the film. And I knew that eventually it was going to make it onto uh, the treasures from the Disney vault. So I'm I'm glad that my patience has finally paid off and I'm going to get the chance to watch this one. I remember seeing it in the theaters, and I, I took a couple of young um, relatives with me at the time. And it, it just seemed like a, a typical Disney family film at the time. Um, the acting is fine. You know, I, it's predictable, you know. Um, you know, but, you know, it's like... A lot of a lot of even classic Disney films are predictable. You know, I'm one of my favorite live action films was Family Robinson. Well, you knew the pirates were going to show up. You knew yeah. the minute that they were going to take uh, the animals from the ship to land, there were going to be sharks. You know, I mean, you just you know the, the, there are things that happen. You knew that the, you knew that Franz was going to catch his tire gonna catch his tiger or whomever it was that dug that little pit and um and that it was gonna get out again and so you know so i found it 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 was fine family fair it's not it's it's you know it's just fun you know but it's not it's not a great film it's 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 not memorable it's a turn your brain off and just just enjoy it just go along for the ride and i like those ones yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, now Charles Jarreau had previously directed Genevieve Bujold and Anne of a Thousand Days, which had earned them Academy Award nominations. And both Elliot Gould and Genevieve Bujold, they were making the first film for Disney with this one. Uh, the film was based on the book The Gremlin's Castle by Ernest K. Gann. He also wrote the classic aviation novels The High and the Mighty and Fate is the Hunter. And those were turned into films as well, not by the Disney studio, though. The film was shot at a desert airfield near Victorville, California, Kauai, and Waikiki Beach in Hawaii, with interior shots um, shot at the Walt Disney Studio sound stages. The scrapped airframes from four um, B-29 aircraft that were located at the U.S. Navy's China Lake facilities were used. Two of the scrapped aircraft were used in Hawaii, whilst the other two were shipped to the Burbank studio for interiors. Extensive modifications are made in order to have a fuselage that could float. And after filming, all the aircraft remains had to be returned to the U.S. Navy. Now, one additional aircraft, a former U.S. Navy P-2B-1S long-range search version of the B-29 Superfortress named Fertile Myrtle, was used for the flying scenes in the film. And that that, um, aircraft is still around. Um, as a classic, uh, you know, plane that folks can, you know, ride on oh, and stuff. that's cool. Yeah. Now, Ricky Schroeder, who was just 11 during filming, was disappointed in not being allowed to skateboard during the film, owing to the possibility of scrapes, cuts, bumps, and 
bruises. Uh, despite these precautions, just two weeks into filming, Ricky got a rope burn whilst playing, and that had to be written into the script. And at another time, whilst posing for publicity photos atop the film's 2,400-pound Brahma bull, he toppled off into the shallow water of the ocean. Um, the day before filming ended, though, Ricky did receive his skateboard. So, so the last flight of Noah's Ark was released to many drive-in theaters on a double bill with 101 Dalmatians. And the film's promotional slogan was, Treat your family to a Disney summer. The feature received mixed reception from critics, and it earned $11 million at the box office. Um, Elliot Gould said that The Last Flight of Noah's Ark was the finest film he ever did, and the one he was proudest of. So, And you know what? With that, A New Day Dawns. It is time to fry up some sausage and bacon, whip up a batch of Mickey waffles, pour yourself a glass of orange juice, and start your day or or go to bed. <laughs> yep, one or the other. It's, there's yeah. no bad choice. Well, after all of that film watching, we have to jump right in now to this day in Disney history. And we are looking at the week of October 6th. And because uh, this episode ran so long, we we're, we decided not to have a guest on. Rather, we're going back to our alternate format where I pose some questions to Craig and, and test his knowledge all by himself. So um, I'm ready. So it's I need to redeem myself a little bit after uh, after getting crushed by, by Alexander. <laughs> yeah, he he knew his stuff. All right. Well, okay. We're going to look at October sixth. So, Craig, immediate event for the opening of this land at Disney's California Adventure took place on October sixth, two thousand and two. Which land was it? Oh, um, I I know. I know what land it was just because we did it. I'm just not sure. I, I know it is a bug's land, but the, was this back when it was still, what was the original thing? Like Flick Circus or I, I don't, I, I know it was something else before, but um, ultimately a bug's land, right? It is. It's a bug's land. Even though it had been in operation since 2001, it was, it, this was its um, media event. Yeah, and this was designed especially for the younger guests. Of course, it was inspired by the Disney Pixar film, and it had features like Flick's Flyer and Tuck and Roll's Driving Buggies, and of course, your favorite. What was that that train called? Heimlich's Choo Choo Train. Uh, Yeah. And it will officially open to the public the following day. Of course, it is now... um, It is now relegated to Disney California Adventure history. Stark Industries took it over that's right crush those little bugs anyway although i think we will see flicks flyers in another form over pixar yeah that'll be the inside out emotional world yeah that's just as creative as the rest of that area is (laughs) okay all right that, that, they should just throw Muppets Take Liberty Square in there, too, and just really make it a mess. <laughs> hey, anyway. it, say what you will, but I love the Incredicoaster. 
especially at night. I think it is amazing. I haven't I haven't ridden it yet, but I, I'm sure it'll be great. I was there like the week before it opened. <laughs> All right. October 7th. Okay. Legendary animator Myron Grimm Natwick passed in Los Angeles, California at the age of 100 on October 7th, 1990. He worked on Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Ferdinand the Bull, but what non-Disney animated character is he best known for creating? And I'm going to give you a clue. This this character had a cameo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hmm. Um. Now, thank you for the clue. I'm trying to go through. So I know for a fact that he didn't create. Well, I don't know for a fact, but I know who created Looney Tunes, and I don't think he did any of those characters. And obviously, the one that uh, the scene that jumps out to me first and foremost is the the scene with the. Mickey and Bugs skydiving. Um, I can't think of any other cameos off the top of my head, though. So I'm going to have to say I don't know it. Okay. Betty Boop. Oh, oh in the the nightclub. Oh, geez. It, right. Was that the Ink and Paint Club? Or what was it called? Yeah. And she was black and white, which is what I thought was so clever. Folks think who? Betty Boop was huge. At one time, there was merchandise everywhere for her. Oh, I and I should know from Universal too, considering she's still such a big part of Universal Studios Florida. So uh, that now I need to go back and rewatch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I, I feel like I let myself down on that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and just as a side note, Natwick was awarded the Windsor McKay Award, nineteen seventy-five, which is a very prestigious award. So. So I want to make sure that we folks know about that. Um, okay, on so here we go. October eighth. This is really a birthday week. Disney producer, writer, director, and narrator Winston Hibbler is born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on October eighth, nineteen ten. He narrated many of Walt Disney's live-action documentaries, produced the Disneyland. TV series and made contributions to such classic animated made made contributions to classic and animated live action features. Um, what is Hibbler's best known and perhaps briefest written work for Walt Disney? I no hints on this one. Um, it was televised. Uh, I. I'm going to have to pass on this one. I, I genuinely, I, I couldn't even take a guess. It was Walt Disney's opening day Disneyland speech. Uh, I, okay. See, I wasn't really thinking in that mindset. So I know. I, I it, it is surprising. Yeah. Because, you know, we we think uh, of you know, so many other people that wrote for Walt, but they really came in, you know, much later, like Marty Scalar or somebody, but... You know, he didn't. He wasn't doing that at the time. He was later, so. Um, and there, dash my dreams. I would have hoped that he would have just Walt would have just wrote that himself from his heart, but apparently not. Yeah, yeah. Well, Walt heavily, heavily, heavily edited it. I mean, he did an almost a complete rewrite. Um, it is it, they they have it with Walt's edits. So um, anyway, so but yeah, but Winston. Was was the one that tasked with starting it out. 
So, um, so for October 9th now, singer-songwriter John Lennon, who rose to worldwide fame as one of the founding members of the Beatles, is born in Liverpool, England, on October 9th, 1940. In August 1965, Walt Disney met Brian Epstein, manager of the Beatles, to discuss the possibility of the popular Fab Four performing songs for which upcoming Disney film? Thank you for throwing in an easy one. That's the Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. You're probably going to ask, you know, what do they do at the Polynesian? But, um, yeah, later Lennon supposedly vetoed the idea, and Walt ended up using semi-soundalikes to voice what wound up being vultures in the film, who, really strangely, I never understood this, they sang Barbershop yeah. Quartet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Even as a boy, that confused me because, of course, you know, I grew up with the Beatles. You know, I remember seeing them on the Ed Sullivan show when I was in second grade. And so uh, it, they were clearly the Beatles when you see the um, the mop tops. The mop, mop tops, yeah. yeah. And then they were Barbershop Quartet. Yeah. I, I, I didn't get it. <laughs> you know, it's, sometimes you're just not supposed to understand things in life. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, all right, very good. Okay, October 10th. Walt Disney, no birthdays. Walt Disney's third television series had its debut on ABC TV on October 10th, 1956. What is the name of this series? Well, feel terrible, but I, I genuinely don't know. Well,. The answer here is, well, Presenting Senior Zorro is the debut episode of Zorro. And this new adventure series stars Guy Williams in the dual role of Zorro and Don Diego. Henry Calvin is Sergeant Demetrio Lopez Garcia. Gene Sheldon is Bernardo. And George J. Lewis is Don Alejandro. Zorro, which is Spanish for fox, is the story of a masked rider who battles the unjust rulers of the Pueblo of Los Angeles during the days of Spanish rule. I love this series because it was in syndication um, when I was a boy. Yeah, so. I've, watched the, uh, I, I've watched the episodes on the, the Walt Disney mm-hmm. Treasures box set and I, I knew it very well because it was in one of the, the first couple, uh, the, this, um, the theme song was in one of the first couple Disney sing-along songs. Back in the the nineties, so I, I definitely, I just did not, I I, I just didn't think about that. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, Zorro. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. October eleventh, Apollo seven, which is the first manned mission in the Apollo program, is launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, on October seventh, nineteen sixty eight, for an eleven day Earth orbital mission. The crew is made up of Commander Wally Shira, Commander Module Pilot Don Isley, um, and Lunar Module Pilot Walter Cunningham. What Disney item did Wally Shira wear during the mission? I believe I know the answer to this. And I think it's a Mickey Mouse watch. That's exactly right. Yeah, you wore a Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah. I I have a fascination with everything with the Apollo. So I I love it. I actually just got done uh my stress recovery while I was on the the mend was building the uh the Saturn V rocket Lego set. 
so oh wow that's huge it's it's sitting right behind me and it's it's definitely over three feet tall wow so but it, it's amazing so very cool now do they have a lunar module yeah lego kit you have to get that oh no it, it came in the pack so it has it not it comes with uh like it's the entire rocket and then it's got the lunar module on kind of like a little little moon set so you can have the astronauts outside and have uh have the the u.s flag put in the ground and then it also has um it has the return module with the balloons all around it to keep it afloat in the water so oh cool yeah does it have the lunar rover no that's that's where it doesn't (laughs) so that's a that's a one day maybe yeah Mm -hmm. okay well that's cool you have to show that to me sometime. Yeah. Okay, October 12th. What Disneyland Frontierland opening day attraction officially closed on October 12th, 1986? Hmm. Um, any hints? Um, it's a rip-roaring good time. <laughs> I have a gut feeling on it i know we've talked so much about frontierland on this show and i feel like there's not a lot of stuff that lasted a long time from the very early days into into the time period you said um i'm going to i'm going to go out on a limb and say is it the Golden Horseshoe? It, right? Yeah. It officially closed. The Golden Horseshoe Review. Yeah, this show, written by Wally Bogue and Donald um, Novus, had been running since July 1955. On this night, the show features Betty Taylor, who played Slewfoot Sue for 30 years. And she was the longest-running cast member. See, I'm yeah. finally listening to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I miss that show so much. So, yeah, I I mean at least there still is entertainment in in your building though. Yes. So that's that's the highlight. Unlike unlike ours that has dining but not a, a whole lot else going on in there. Yeah, that's too bad. I don't understand that. How it's all. better than the days where it wasn't even used for dining and it was just a dance party during yeah. Halloween and and Christmas. So I, I'll take any any little upgrades to it that's possible yeah. but um I, it, it's it is just weird considering if they went full all in on making these dinner experiences with a show and everything just how much people would pay in this in this day and age so yeah of course golden horseshoe review is free <laughs> back in the day nothing is free anymore i know i know yeah well, not bad. You got quite a few correct there. Yeah. I, I, there's room for improvement. Craig, any final words on, on the films? I, I think uh, I think it's definitely an interesting mix of uh, ones that have been released, which has seemed to have been the... the kind of the trend lately uh with these it's not as as rare as it was for a little while there at the start uh, but you know it's overall it's i think a lot of these films 
uh, are going to be introduced to people for the first time. And that's that's what's important about Treasures mm-hmm. from the Disney Vault. Not that us diehards uh, get to see something we haven't seen before. It's that we get to to get reacquainted with ones that we might might have forgotten about or or haven't seen in many years. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it'll. I think overall, it's a, a decent decent lineup. Yeah, and keep in mind our opinions on these films. There are our opinions only. You may disagree. You may, after watching The Black Hole, you <laughs> may start a letter-writing campaign to get that film remade was, because you enjoyed this one so much. I was going to say, the so. one asterisk on that is all of these are our opinions except for The Black Hole. That's just definitive. <laughs> Well, you never know. But, you know, we would be interested in hearing what you think about it. So go to our Twitter page, you know, at Connecting Walt, and, um, and, and, let us, and let us know what did you think of these. Did you, did you enjoy them? Do you agree with our, our thoughts or disagree? Or, did, you know, did you pick up on any little details that we didn't talk about? Yeah. So, um, you know, so anyway, um, if so, and if you miss any of these films or your DVR is too full to record all of these, uh, as we've been talking about, many are available on home video, various streaming services, and even YouTube. Uh, for references, I use the Disney films by Leonard Maltin and websites. Uh, I, I use D23, the official fan club, the Disney films um, site the Disney Wiki, and um, the Internet Movie Database, IMBD. So we hope that sharing the background of these films was fun. We hope it'll add to your evening. Maybe you can, you know, we can be your Siskel and Ebert. Maybe, you know, play our play our review of it before you watch the film or after. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, let us let us enjoy these films with you. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>